All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is another Tuesday, which means it's another time for an MSP Initiative episode. We bring back the man, the guru, the person that keeps up on all the news that you don't have time to keep up with on your own, Mr. Dave Sobel from MSP Radio. What's going on, Dave? It's always great to be back. You're exactly right. Always out there uh, reading news stories and trying to parse out what people need to know and why do they care. I 100% agree. And like technology land is no, no loss for new news. So let's, I mean, we had, uh, we had Matt Lee from Iconic and um, Ken Patterson, as well as um, um, Ryan Burton on from PAX 8. So out of Microsoft Ignite, which is like one of the two big Microsoft conferences of the year, you know, words, word comes out about this new Microsoft final, actually finally focusing on, the MSP space, right? And for some reason, like they were never getting there, and then all of a sudden, here we are, right? Well, so I, I'll I'll challenge the idea that they were never got there. Like I, I laugh and go, I have this white paper from 2005 that Microsoft commissioned about how to build your managed services provider, and it's this like 70 page document. It's one of the best written guides to building a managed services provider, and it's dated 2005. Like it's a, it's an amazing piece. So to say they haven't been thinking about it is I would challenge that because I think they've been thinking about it. They're just diligent. They move at a different pace than the rest and they have not, they're, they're not overly a aggressive. A different pace. I mean, you're talking like 10 years, man. Well, ex- but except they've been charting the course of everywhere you needed to be, right? They were well positioned with small business server. They were, on top of the conversion to cloud as they converted to off, you know, B-Pause, Office 365, now Microsoft 365, they correctly knew where the market was going and they positioned to that. And so, you know, partners weren't happy, right? Partners weren't happy when SBS died and they moved to the cloud. They thought they were abandoning. No, they were skating where the puck was. And you're exactly right. Coming out of Inspire, I did a piece around uh, what I'm saying is Microsoft announcing their new RMM tool, Lighthouse. And Lighthouse is a multi-tenant <laughs> MSP-focused product, which is entirely about monitoring and management. And what's interesting is, is they use all of the words that you would think of coming from, from a, a vendor that would be selling an RMM. They talk about management. They talk about device policies. They talk about, uh, you know, compliance. Like it's all the buzzwords of an RMM. And that's where I, what I think is happening here is they are skating to where the puck is because I've seen you know, a lot of, a lot of, and I love the dialogue. I love being called out, right? Because people are saying, oh, Dave, it's not an RMM. It's not an RMM. And I'm like, it's an RMM where the puck will be. <laughs> it wow. is, it is about state management. It's about device management and policy management about the way the future will be. Am I sitting here going like it's a feature feature comparison with traditional players? Ah, not so much. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they're skating where the puck will be. <laughs> well, there's actually there's actually some some thought on that, right? So, number one, in order to get access to this, you need Intune, right? Which right. a lot of systems are out there don't have Intune today, right? And I'm sure as Microsoft continues to build out 365, then you know that'll become just more and more prevalent. But the other thing is, like, how does this, um, you know, how does this merge and mesh with what's already going on, right? Like, you know, the, the, the going theory from earlier in MSP Initiative land was that, hey, listen, nobody's going to try and, you know, compete with Microsoft on their own platform, tie in and just augment, right? Right. I mean, that's obviously what's already happening. We heard SolarWinds already said they, they're yep. tying into their stuff, right? They'll, so, they'll all go that way. I predict right now my, my incredibly bold prediction, right? They're all, everybody's going to integrate with this. Everyone's going to integrate with this. It's going to become a key, key component. There is, what I think is interesting is strategically, essentially we're saying is, look, they've, they, Microsoft has claimed that space the pieces that they're working on within tune with lighthouse, you're just not going to be able to beat them. You're going to play on their turf and extend it. If we got in the DeLorean and we went back five years, we could have told the everybody like that's where it's going to be. If they had built those products 
they it would be a different story but they didn't so this sure. is where it is now <laughs> so as we look to the future you need to understand that from a microsoft centric perspective if you're on microsoft you know 365 Intune is part of their strategy. Now, Lighthouse is part of their strategy. It is a device state management solution. And Microsoft is saying all the things that tell me it's their version of an RMM, a future looking version. Sure. No, I totally, I, I agree. It's definitely going there. I mean, yeah. the, question, the question is how long will it take to become uh, like, you know, all things, right? If you bring, if you, you know, LCD TVs or LED or whatever they're going to, like, you know, now you can go buy a 55 inch for 200 bucks, right? But four right. years ago, you know, you're dropping eight, nine thousand dollars, right? So like, right. you know, right now, I think the going, you know, just to get in tune by itself, assuming you're not on a high enough 365 tier to get it already, you're talking about another eight bucks, uh, yep. a user, right? right. Uh, so that's not compared to, you know, compared to what's already out there from a, RMM standpoint, that would be a very large premium, right? Well, a premium comparing against that, I will, I always go back to, remember, this is still supposed to be a small percentage of your overall costs of delivering your managed services. The tools right. bit is not the big, big expense, big expense is labor. You're totally right. But last I checked, Microsoft is the one sitting on piles of cash. If they decide to start investing in them, there's nothing wrong, nothing stopping them from turning down that price, making it easier to do. They're going to continue to think about the way that they want to position it. Look, I mean, they just bought, you know, the, all those game companies, uh, the, you know, the entire Bethesda Zenmax piece yep. for cash. Like Listen, they bought that for like, cash. Microsoft, <laughs> I, like Microsoft is like the Scrooge McDuck, you know, Ducktales right. to the money bin. I got you. Yeah. I got you. So so to to sit here and go like Microsoft is just thinking this through. They're thinking they, right now that yeah, you're right. It's on the higher tiers. If they want to push this out, it is nothing stopping them from changing the dial to make this a rollout. They also want to make sure that it makes sense for the partners. I mean, I think this is being super diligent, right? They're being careful about who's allowed into the beta. They're having very close conversations with partners. The people that were on this panel, I mean, those are some really great MSPs, really thoughtful that are thinking about this. They don't have to rush. The cool thing about this story is, is none of this is like, oh my goodness, you're change now you're at total disaster no you can see this playing out over the next 12 18 24 maybe 36 months 100%. like this is this is this is the opportunity you just need to know this is part of the long-term thinking if you're constantly thinking about the way that you're going to go in a direction what your toolkit is you now you have a sense of hey the market is going that way i yeah. need to think about what i'm doing be remiss if i didn't point out many of you are probably on what one or two year contracts maybe now is the time to be thinking about how all this fits together i'm not sitting here saying like oh everyone's gonna run and change right now no but i would rather give you good forward-looking advice that says hey that's the way the market i think is moving yeah point your ship that direction that's what you need to be working on. Agree, agree. So moving on, um, we have mentioned last call, uh, which was I was coming off the Channel Strong Tour, 7,000 miles around the country. Yep. Uh, the hooligans um, about internet connectivity and the, you know it's not what they advertise it is and that the U.S. is behind. So there's an update to that story, right? Yeah. So obviously I've, I've been talking to you about this. I, you know, I dug into the open signal data. I dug into the markup piece while our friends over at Channel Partners had, uh, had picked this up and they actually went and, and you know, actually talked to the carriers about that. And, and uh, you know, there's a, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll include the link to, to the piece on that because Channel Futures dug into it and did some covering on that. Of course, they, uh, you know, my criticism of them is that they oftentimes compare to one another, right? T-Mobile compares to Verizon, Verizon compares to- well, to get away with the ad saying the best, the right, big, the Right, best. and my statement is, is okay, great, you're, you're all fine, but last I'm checking, like, you know, connectivity in Saudi Arabia and Korea across you know, like all of these in Norway, like these, all these other countries are way outpacing us. 
I'd really like to play in that game. <laughs> I'd really like to unlock that value. Uh, I'd like to sell solutions around this. And we're all just waiting on you carriers. Like we can't get involved. Uh, you know, Verizon and AT&T didn't respond to the story. They didn't even have comment. And of course, T-Mobile focused on their existing pieces, their competitiveness in cities. And I think they missed the point. They missed the point of the statement of, of again, you're comparing yourself to just your your American competitors, you're not comparing yourself globally. Uh, I'd like to play on that stage. I'd like to take advantage of these, these technologies and to tell me that we're another two to three years back, like, okay, uh, I guess you made some choices that limit the market for the rest of us. I agree. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> I agree. No, it's, it's interesting. I love when they decline to comment. That's always the best. It is always uh, the best. No, I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to take that criticism. Yeah, 100%. So let's, let's, let's jump to another one. And this is actually kind of today news, right? We're not even going back in time. So we keep on kind of poking around legislation and registration and cybersecurity from a, from a legal like law standpoint. But there's new news on this now. Well, anybody know who comes, you guys are coming to me and asking this stuff. This is a beat that I'm super interested in is what's the legislation around uh, for MSPs, around MSP legislation, around cybersecurity legislation for small businesses. On Friday, a bipartisan group of House and Senate lawmakers introduced a legislation that is focused on small businesses, not-for-profits, and local governments around cyber attacks. And the Idea behind it is to develop and issue guidance on cybersecurity policies policies for those groups. The SBA and the Cyber Homeland Security Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency will be required to promote the guidance that they create, and the SBA will be additionally required to issue a report on the state of small business security every two years. Wow. So I look at this and say, this is really interesting, right? So this is the, the government is going to come out with specific guidance to help small not, businesses, not-for-profits and local governments implement proper cybersecurity and will report back to Congress on the current state of the market for, these, for the legislators to understand. If you're in, the, in managed services, we talk all the time about the idea of you can't manage which you don't monitor, right? Like you can't be active about these kinds of bits. I'm just going to say like, looks to me like the government is trying to get a sense of where we're at. If they're going to be looking and doing reporting on an every, I mean, yeah, it's every two years. I'm not sitting here saying this is moving at ultra high speed, but what well, I listen, am saying- If they're starting to ask the questions, then then- they're not just asking them to ask. Usually it's the foundation to something else. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And so look, there's short term, there's opportunity here. You don't think that the SBA, the CISA is, is going to work with consultants to build this stuff. Somebody's going to do some business here. <laughs> so that's the short term if, if this law gets passed. But let me observe, this isn't a particularly controversial law. It's bipartisan. It's essentially saying, go build some training and do some reporting. Who doesn't think the legislatures are going to vote yes on help us understand cybersecurity and work for small businesses? That's like the easiest vote these guys are going to get <laughs> in a long time that they can take back to their constituents and all say, look what we passed. We passed guidance to help small businesses. Like it's, it's, a it's on their list of things that's easy to say yes to so of course i expect this will pass it may be too it may be too easy quite frankly um it's look I, it's not a controversial law it's not it's yeah. not something that's like massively you know difficult i'm just pointing out you know, and you hear from me all the time is hey everybody regist le legislation is coming for us it's a slow moving train but that doesn't mean it's not moving <laughs> Well, well, that doesn't stop the fact that on the other side of the coin that the uh, was it the Department of Treasury in conjunction with the Department of Justice has now come out saying, yo, if you're going to pay the ransom, you better be super careful because you may be breaking the law. 
Well, that was that was a super interesting story as well, and I'm I'm glad you brought it up because you're exactly right. The uh, Treasury has come out with some guidance saying that if you pay the ransom, you might be breaking the law. Now, there's a subtlety to that. What's interesting about the way that when I read this, and again, I am not a lawyer, right? So that's the but I'm reading this, and what what they're actually highlighting is the fact that you have to be involving law enforcement. I.e., if you go forth and you just pay a ransom and you don't report it, that in particular is the piece that they're worried about. Now, we all know how lawyers work. We all know how laws work. It can be, it can be fought out in the court, all of that. What the major intention of the guidance is to do is to send a message of, you need to treat this like the crime that it is when something happens and involve third-party forensics and law enforcement. And this is one of those bits where it's all, it's simple to think about, but you have to remember it during that incident. Well, well, but but Dave, I I think part of, part of, here's the reality, right? Right. Number one, that, unless it's a large enough dollar amount involved, the FBI and, and the federal law enforcement, probably aren't going to be involved, right? And That's then, true. And then if you go to your local law enforcement, right, municipal, state police, something like that, they're probably not equipped, right? Other than to take a report, they might not be equipped to do anything about it. That's, so that's all may be very true. But remember, the cyber crimes unit at the FBI is designed to take the reports, like even on at, at various levels. The major piece of, of guidance around this is simply treat it like the crime that it is. Do not bypass process. Do not bypass, you know, just, just go forth and pay the ransom to make it go away or do the cover up. You have to do the diligence and recognize that this is a crime. This, the same as, as we think about like a hit and run style. Maybe two cars hit one another. This isn't going to be a massive case. This isn't going to be something that happens, but you still have to go forth and do the diligence of reporting the incident. Like, you know, two cars back into one another. You have to report the incident. That's part of the process. And if you don't do the process, you may be breaking the law and making the problem worse. So, and then on, you know, listen, I'm, I'm, these are all kind of Legoing <laughs> together here. Yep. Had another one that you talked about here about how do you, how not, how not <laughs> deliver cybersecurity training. So this all falls right into the next conversation. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's totally true because I mean, I, I, have, I, I cover these pieces cause I think they're, they're just continually evolving stories. Um, you know, what's interesting around that, that story is, is there was some, du- some research around the effectiveness of tr- security training. Um, what was interesting is, is that it's up, you know, in fact, 45% of employees surveyed expect to spend about 15 minutes or more per month in training. And it's up 26% from the previous year. The massive takeaway from this is, is that boring cybersecurity training actually is less effective. People don't engage, they don't take it. And we kind of all laugh and go, well, that seems intensely obvious. Why did we do the research on that? Well, because that actually matters, that, inve- that spending the time on that is important to do it right, because we can actually see that cybersecurity awareness training is perceived as important by everybody in the chain. And in fact, security IT leaders, like everybody is, including staff and the businesses themselves, are on board with the idea that developing cybersecurity culture is important. The research shows us that. But what's funny is, is the employees themselves are just the ones that are less convinced. And we see that when it becomes boring, it's not useful. It's why some of these ideas where it's ongoing training, the kinds of testing and interactions, we see these people that are doing phishing, simulated phishing attacks where, you know, it's a simulation and the, the, the user gets one, essentially one-on-one guidance. They get tested. They get to know what's going on. That's much more, more interactive and I, not boring. The idea of let's put everybody in a class and moan at them for 45 minutes and that, that isn't as effective. I look at all of this and I say, huge opportunity, right? If you differentiate yourself by, by doing it right, by making it interesting, making it, you know, investing a little bit in making the production good, making it 
enter, somewhat entertaining as best as a dry topic can be, uh, not monotonous. By that extra bit of value, you heighten the effectiveness through, both through research and we instinctively know this. So, which, which then once again piggybacks into that, you know, risks that are coming into at least the U.S. market from coronavirus, I assume, look like cybersecurity risks too. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot of, we're, you know, this is, it's a confusing market. And what we're also seeing is, that, I mean, amusingly, criminals are not uh, behaving. Some of them said, oh, we're not going to do any incidents during COVID. Yeah, that's proving to not be true. Uh, shocking. <laughs> and, and I even call that out. Some of, the, some of these researchers were surprised in some of the, the coverage saying, oh, you know, they said they weren't going to attack. And I just laugh and go, really? You clearly weren't paying attention on this one to the, to the long legacy of, of criminal action on this. It's interesting because, you know, you think about all the retail places now, mostly digital transactions, right? Not, you know, cash and even coins, right? With the U.S. coin shortage, right? You're just seeing a lot less of it. Yep. It, it's almost more lucrative from a criminal's perspective to go cyber rather than to try and show up at some place with a mask and a gun, right? Oh, it's a, I mean, it's a fantastic business. <laughs> if not for the fact that it's incredibly illegal, what a great business. I mean, and we've seen that evolving business model behind it. I've covered a couple of stories of this idea of the outsourced deployment of ransomware. Some of these developers are now building affiliate businesses where they will, you know, they will let the deployer of the software take 70 to 80 or sorry, 60 to 70% of the cut of any ransom paid out. And the developer takes the 30 to 40% cut and just becomes an affiliate marketing scheme for deploying ransomware. Ridiculous. Absolutely. Hey, it's, it's the idea of outsourcing, right? The idea that the developers know what they're really good at. So they built the, built the software, they outsource the marketing and the deployment to the other groups and everybody becomes a, a whole ecosystem of deployment. 100%. So on another front, Forrester adjusted their their projections for this year and for next year, right? Yeah, well, of course, I mean, they're, they're always doing this effort to project out and give us some guidance into that. We, when we talked earlier this year, we talked about their three scenarios and we laid out the various pieces of that. Well, they have now readjusted for their projections going in. I tend to, what I spend to do a lot of with my research is I dive into CIO data to understand what the recommendations are being made to CIOs and then interpret it for small business customers. If we're constantly telling our partners that we're trusted advisors or that we're the virtual CIO, well, if we go mine the CIO data, that should give us a pretty good sense of what's going on. <laughs> so that's- Also that, you know, enterprise technology land seems to have a slightly different pace than SMB technology. Land. They do, but there's lessons we can learn. So what I did was I dug into the Forrester warnings to CIO and they lay out again, their three scenarios. What was interesting is before the most likely scenario only had about a 60% probability. Now the scenario with the most likely case is 70% probability. So it's, we got a pretty good sense that, Hey, it's going to go that way. The three scenarios, the first with a 10% probability, was the idea of after a short drop in spending, budgets see a strong recovery in the fourth quarter of this year and into 2021. But that's only about a 10% probability. Mm -hmm. Scenario C with about a 20% probability is a 9% decline in US tech budgets from 2019 and a 5% drop in 2021. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's, but the, the scenario that they lay out with a 70% probability is a 6.3% decline in 2020 U.S. tech budgets from 2019. So for me, I look at that and say 90% of all the projections are indicating a decline in technology spending that leads into 2021 is the way that I'm looking at this and saying, okay, that's, <laughs> that tells me Look, I need to expect that technology spending is going to be impacted the rest of this year. And I need to think that for next some period of time next year, it's likely also to be affected. So uh, ransomware as a service? 
Hey, we know it's a business. We could, we could, if you're interested, we could get into that business right away. But uh, you know, I'd rather fight on this side of the battle than on the, the, no, the side I, of evil. I agree. There's uh, there's no question about that. So, you know, looking at other things that were going on, there are nine trends in businesses that businesses are embracing. Yep. I, and I, on this one, you know, so, so this for me was an opportunity to highlight somebody else's work on the podcast and say, look, if you want to dive into this list, there's a, here's a specific piece of research that talks about the industries that are being reshaped by COVID-19. So a quick rundown of those nine industries. And then you know, this is from the September 30th episode of, uh, of the Business of Tech, if people want to get into the research. Uh, the first was connected living, which is the idea of home automation and security. We've got connected work focused on cloud everything and subscriptions. We have digital health with telemedicine and robotic care. Got that, the idea of the geopolitical balance, which is the focus on keeping trade flowing is a, an actual business trend that is emerging. Human augmentation, with the, where the definition is behavioral analytics and data used in healthcare, financial services, and cybersecurity, so better data. Lights out operations, which is those fully autonomous operations, including remote asset management. Smart cities, according to digital services and data analytics. Then we get into supply chain optimization, which is augmented reality, virtual reality, robotics, real-time inventory tracking, and 3D printing. And then finally is the area of businesses embracing just general technology advancement, specifically the deployment of artificial intelligence and machine learning. So it seems like the major trends that I just took from those nine are... Yeah. Remote stuff. Yep. Business intelligence stuff. Yep. And basically, you know, like automation, some sort of automation regard, you know, in your in your field. It totally is. And for me, I also say the other thing that, that connects those three that you've pulled is they are all business conversations about business outcomes and how to do more with technology in your customers' businesses. That's the theme. If you're thinking about that. That's the question. It really hit home for me today. I was actually on, on Reddit this morning and, I, and somebody asked the, the question that always gets asked me, wow, I am thinking about starting my MSP. I'm thinking to start a brand new MSP. So I came here to ask, you know, and I'm thinking about these four tools to deploy. And I instantly sort of my post back was the, don't start there. Please start with what business value are you working on? What business value are you selling the infrastructure stuff will flow from that. Go figure out how you're helping these customers with their business challenges with like technologies like this. No, I mean, listen, it really comes down to, again, the, the plumbing isn't, isn't the focal point anymore, right? You said, hey, right. Microsoft you know, was on small business server. They moved to cloud. They did this, they did that. Like what's, they're building for what's next, right? This is- exactly. Ultimately, what's what's coming up next? Business intelligence is, is a very—it's almost like IT, right? It's a very broad term, right? And now all right. of a sudden, we're trying to reel it in and like specialize. But yep. uh, I almost feel like it's this—it's what happened to the sports industry with sports analytics, right? Now all it's, of a sudden, the the guy on the sideline trying to figure out what play to call is looking at the trends and he's looking at graphs and charts and like that's not what it used to be. Yeah, and, and look, I, I'm not dismissive of people's infrastructure businesses. Those are, those are solid businesses. And by the way, they are the foundation to do the rest with. If you have that leg, if you have that business, you've been in it for a while, it's important. I'm not dismissive of that. I'm just making sure everyone understands the growth, the value is not in that piece. The value is in the stuff you do with it on top of that foundation. And you want to be getting involved in these questions around how are we using these technologies? How are we enabling people to work better remotely? How are we doing better with analytics, with the machine learning to provide better insights based on data? All of that stuff, it requires a good infrastructure, but that's not the end of the conversation. So... Part of this shifts into another topic that you talked about is where is marketing and sales being shifted now post like now that the pandemic is, you know, mid or hopefully behind us a little bit. It seems like those marketing and sales dollars are moving towards 
Yep. And, and what was interesting is, so Tech Isle dug into some of the ways that people were doing lead generation. And what they found is that 49% of channel partners have allocated resources as a budget for lead generation. But 60% rely on leads from vendors, which is an increase of 18%. I would so, that's, so that's very intriguing. Let me stop you for a second. Because yeah. I can't tell you, like I've sat on both sides of the, of the aisle now, right? Uh, yep. Channel, we'll talk about what channel means maybe down the road from a channel standpoint, right? Right. I started and, and still have an MSP. And then I turned around and started offering services to MSPs. I'm going to tell you right now that MSPs say that, I mean, the people that I'm talking to all day long don't feel like they're getting a lot of leads from their, from their vendors. So well, that's very intriguing to your research here. Well, let's, put, let's be specific about what the research says. Rely on leads. It did not say how, whether, uh, whether or not they are getting those leads. What it actually may mean is, is there is a dearth of leads, that they are not getting enough, and so they're, des they're more desperate in looking for their vendors. What I also found that was interesting was 29% more of channel partners than previously are finding social media as one of the most effective methods for lead gen. Let's observe we're doing this right out on Facebook Live. I mean, that's, that's exactly that kind of trend. And 46% of partners have increased their use of analytics to drive leads. And 60% are increased around influencer marketing. Interesting. Well, I mean, listen, marketing, I've learned the hard way that mar there's no one marketing that wins it all, right? I mean, right. unless you own a major television channel, Sort of, short of that, right? Or, or you own a billboard on the side of the highway nearby you. There's multiple things you need to do to make marketing work. But one thing is, it sounds like it's clear is that, you know, number one, there's MDF money out there that's untapped. Number two, vendors who say that their channel should be sending those leads to their partners, right? Right. And well, if there's not a relationship there, then you're missing out on that. Exactly. And, and, that's, and it should be one part of your overall approach to marketing. You're exactly right. You need to have a portfolio of different investments around that. I think it's a very clear argument that you need to be investing more in digital right now. There is opportunities in digital marketing. There is opportunities in social marketing and influencer marketing, like particularly with face-to-face -face much more difficult. You need to be doing those other pieces. I would argue that you know if people are relying more on leads from vendors, I think that is an unhealthy move because that is, that is not where you're going to necessarily see all of your best pieces. And you know, being real, completely reliant on vendors for that is not a great position for a solution provider to be. Well, I mean, my, my hope is that there's a, just like anything else, there's a relationship there. If mm -hmm. you are bringing business to the table to a vendor relationship and they're then reciprocating when they can, there's a two-way street kind of happening. Oh, totally. Again, part of a larger portfolio, right? I want it to be part of your overall P uh, strategy for marketing of which it is one healthy piece of a larger healthy portfolio. What worries me is when I see these numbers increasing around reliance on it. That tells me, wait a second, we have a problem in that the portfolio isn't diversified enough. They aren't, aren't looking at that. And we know historically, when we dive into the spend numbers of solution providers, sales and marketing, particularly marketing spend is far lower than in other industries. They're just not spending enough on, mark, on marketing efforts. Yeah, I, I, we, could, we could probably talk on this. Oh, later. we could do a whole other piece on this. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think, and listen, there's, there's some very strong, there is, a, there is a consultant network around this bubble that we all live in, right? Oh, totally. And uh, there, you know, at the end of the day, you know, one size doesn't fit all, that's number one. But number two, I think there's just this idea. Marketing's one of those, those situations where it takes time to work. And if they don't give it enough time for the flower to bloom, and then they move on to the next guy and the next guy and the next guy, you, you're just wasting your time and your money. Well, too many people think, and again, we can do a whole piece, we can do whole pieces of, and there are experts that will teach you on this. But I mean, the idea of marketing is an ongoing process of communicating out, not a single event. 
to like an, and I mean event in the sense of a point in time or an executed task, not a necessarily a physical event. What I, what I mean by this is, is marketing is the things you do every single day, every single week, every single month to communicate out your message on a repeated basis. You're exactly right. It takes time. It's a portfolio that you tend over time and keep adding to. It takes a while to get to there, but you have to do that work. And oftentimes solution providers are underinvested in that portfolio. 100% agreed. And maybe we'll, we'll have to create a little panel next time of people who can, can maybe expand on this. Look, there are tons of experts. We are exactly right. We have a whole ecosystem of experts in marketing who can talk to this. I do not stand up here and tell myself, tell anybody that I'm the expert in that. What I'm saying is I'm watching the numbers and I'm seeing the, where the investment dollars are getting placed. And I just look and go, that doesn't seem like a healthy place when the reliance goes up on, for example, vendor leads. I look at that and say, that does not feel like a healthy the marketing ecosystem to me. 100%, which then brings us to uh, a mid-September uh, topic, which was tech confidence falls. Why? Yeah, you know, this, again, this is one of those areas where I keep feeling like I'm reporting on, on this continual drop in people's confidence. So this is a study that came out by the folks at Fleischman Hilliard, and they surveyed the public around the both in the US and internationally about their sense yeah there's a tons of people so they but but yeah the sample size was big enough to get a sense of that um, what what is the percentage of people's comfort level with technology 56% of americans and 59% of those surveyed around the world think that tech companies need to take more action to address the consequences of their policies, practices, and products. Oh boy. <laughs> That's an open door to Pandora, I think. It really is. And look, this is where the, idea, the purpose behind this study by the, the researchers was designed to inject some numbers into the conversation around privacy and regulation, because oftentimes we're doing it based on feeling, not based on data. And sure. she said that while a lot of people still trust and like the tech industry, opposition is growing. I've reported previously, you know, that, that Pew Research had shown a 20-point drop in consumer confidence. I know we've talked about it here on the initiative before, between 20, uh, you know, but prior to 2016 and 2016, that over as we came in in 2016, there was a 20-point drop. Here we're seeing it being, you know, it's around 56% of Americans, a, a majority, are saying tech companies need to take more action. Now, look. We need to all, we, we want to be realistic about this. I was going to say, there's a, there's a, but there's a lot of political stuff that's tied into this topic, right? I to mean, totally. Die, Look, we're dealing, we're, we're often dealing with the fallout from big tech companies, right? We're dealing with the fallout from companies like Facebook, we're like Google, like Amazon. That's why they're the ones out on the Hill right now having to testify in front of Congress. There is scrutiny. My point to the average solution provider who's listening to this going, why does this bother me? The reason you care is this is the environment that you are selling into. Mm. We were the darlings, right? Technology was a great market. Everybody loved their tech. Everybody loved all of this piece. Well, now the, the average consumer has much more skepticism around the technologies themselves. They have a concern around privacy. They have a concern around the ethics and the policies and practices. Now, I think this is an opportunity. I think a small trusted provider who is positioning themselves as that, you know, cliched trusted advisor or that virtual CIO, right? Whatever you want to call it. If you're invested in being transparent, if you're addressing these issues, you're tackling cybersecurity with them, you're invested in training, I think this is an opportunity. I think you can look at this and you can position yourself as the expert. And as I've been beating on in our conversations, right, the idea of you want to be in these higher value conversations because they're worth more. <laughs> they, they are, they're the areas that customers want to talk about. I think you need to first understand this is the environment you're selling into and then take it on, take it head on. Hey, it's this. It's, it's almost the, um, 
before we talked, like last session, we talked about the brands that provide recognition or some sort of value in the conversation with the end customer. There's yep. like a there's like a reverberation from that, right? Hey, some of the same brands could be bad for you in certain cases, right? Yeah. So, so that's why it's always important to position you as you rather than you as just an agent of big company, right? Exactly, it totally is, and you can position yourself as their their you know cliched trusted advisor authenticity matters here. Giving them the, the information in an authentic, informed way, this is super important. And so I would challenge everyone to really be thinking about this environment and understand the impact of this data going forward. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to understand what that really means. Uh, last month, we talked about that home experience for homeschooling being bad. Now we're talking about potential privacy problems with people who are doing exactly that. Oh, we t- and it's, it's such an issue. Like we, we have to understand the impact of these, you know, these privacy problems as we move everybody to work from home, to school from home. We've got some, some data telling us that, you know, kids are expressing pri- concern over this. In fact, the kids are understanding some of the, uh, some of these, pe- these, problems. A survey by Common Sense Media found that only 25% of teachers who participated in professional development on education technology got trained on student data privacy requirements. Surprise. Right. Well, I mean, look, look at this. So, so these are, this is the group that like we've, we've invested in, in education technology, we've deployed it, but we didn't go all the way in terms of, of teaching and training this is the real underserved market. Again, by the way, opportunity alarms, right? Like these, all of this is stuff you can go solve. <laughs> you can go help with training and understanding, but you've got to get involved into that. In fact, you know, what we're finding is, is that 59% of teens felt that online school is worse than traditional learning and 19% are describing it as much worse. <laughs> so again, we've got, we've got room to grow here. Oh, it's totally interesting. I just read something today that the companies that are requiring their home employees to be on a active web session, Zoom, Teams, WebEx, whatever, for more than six hours are very unhappy with that amount of screen time. And going a step further, there's been, there's been situations where through that remote session, going back to the, work, the school from home, you, know, you have a kid who's playing with a toy gun that's not even real. And then the cops show up at their door because somebody from school calls, you know, calls in and they see right. playing with it. Right. So right. look, I mean, and, and I, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting is, is we're, we're not going to go back to the before there was actually, and I, and I don't have this particularly data in front of me, but there's actually a small number of students who are actually performing better because of remote learning and adapted to their learning I style. I mean, oh, I'm sure after this election that's coming up, at some point, people got to well, go back to the building, Dave. But do they have to go back to the same things they did before? I was actually speaking with an educator just this past weekend who was talking about the idea of asynchronous education, the idea that you could actually help students move at their own pace through the programs that made sense for them. It's an idea that is educators are discussing because the idea is, is what if you set it up where you know, look, if we were just, and this is just big thinking, right? But the idea that if right now a year is an arbitrary thing, right? They're in grade five for nine months because we declared that. But right. if a but if a student was capable, was finished a particular set of material, why couldn't they move to another set of material and advance at their own pace? And mm-hmm. and technology would allow that potentially, and that you could have things run on different speeds for different students. Some students may need the structure of an annual piece, but other students may flourish with more individual training. That you can build systems that do both. So my, my challenge to everyone is, is that you don't have to, don't assume things are going back to the way they were, nor do you assume they are going to be the way they are now. They are going to transform into something else. And the else is where the opportunity is, is looking to the trends and figuring out how you can take advantage of that. I don't think, I'm sitting here, I don't think we're going to all work from home forever, but I also don't think we're going to return to exactly the way that offices were before. Or, and I think some people are going to work from home, 
some, and then they will come in for collaboration time and they will be, an office space will be used differently. Schools are an area where it can be different. It doesn't have to be the same when we return. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, definitely in the college environment, right? They've been doing the online thing for a long time. I yep. think the K-12 is really where the whole common core aspect comes in. The They're tracked, right? If you're yep. a higher performing student, you get to go do credit at, you know, maybe the next level or college if you're in high school, whatever it may be. But right. I guess, you know, like there's also this habit of rubber stamping people to the next grade because they just don't want to deal with it. Well, totally. And look, I'm no educator and I do not, I'm not going to make, make way in on, on way education should be done. What I'm, my point to people in technology in our space that are thinking about this is you have an opportunity to think bigger in terms of your strategy. The people that do, I think will be the ones that are incredibly successful through this and on the other side that are looking at these newer ideas and they're being bigger with their thinking than just, oh, I'm going to return to the way it was. Sure, fair enough. So why isn't Vegas paying out this time, Dave? <laughs> so it's, again, it's one of those pieces, you, you got to write a good headline every so often, right? For people to, uh, to, to catch on to that. So what was interesting in this particular case, it was Vegas's largest public school district announced that a hacker had compromised some of their files using ransomware and the school elected not to pay the ransom. And in fact, that their move was to not pay the ransomware. And, you know, the advice of security professionals continue to be to not pay the ransomware because that does encourage more ransomware. During the same story, I'd actually reported on the fact that one of the largest healthcare providers in the U.S., Universal Health Services, was also hit by a ransomware. In fact, this is the one that when I referred to security researchers being upset about attacking hospitals, there was a VP of product management at an IT security firm who said, it's sad to see that despite their claims to stop healthcare cyber attacks, such attacks still take place. To which my reaction was, really? Have you not paid much attention to this recently? Last I checked it, they are by definition breaking the law. Why do you have reason to believe that they would not just break their word on this one? Yeah, I mean, it's it's good. back to your point of we started off in the earlier in the session, which was, hey, you could be it could be illegal to pay these ransomware people. Hey, there would there's now reporting requirements that are going to be made le uh, law potentially. I mean, obviously, stuff like finally the government is starting to catch up to there is a problem. Yep, exactly. And so this is this is happening again. It's it's the 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 steady, slow, deliberate pace of government. But here's an example where the public school system did not pay out. I know here in Fairfax County, the school system was also is dealing with a ransomware attack. It's not come out to to what they're doing, but the encouragement from law enforcement from experts is to not pay the pay ransom. I I second that, and I also would, it would encourage partners to be looking at the ways that they can do more with zero trust security, that they can be investing in minimizing the exposure, doing access and, and policy management. That's, again, where the opportunity is going to lie. Interesting, and I agree with you. Which brings us to the last major mega story of, of the time, which is... Uh, which is re revolving around Datto and their IPO. Well, I certainly have some opinions on that. And I released a piece on the weekend that the community has, uh, has certainly been sharing around and discussing. So Datto has filed their IPO. And they, of course, they intend to go public. They made a bunch of statements about the market, where they're going. There's been lots of discussion about that. Um, for me, actually, the issue that I wanted to highlight for, for solution providers is their choice of stock ticker. Uh, they have elected to go with MSP. Now, I want to pause for a moment and let me tell everybody why, the way that I frame thinking. I have always had this concept of the idea of an active decision versus a passive decision. Okay. I talk about this all the time, in, in particularly with my wife and when, when we make, make decisions, is, is that there are two kinds of decisions. The first is, an active decision. I have actively decided to do something or to not do something. Okay, right? The one that you normally think about. A passive, a passive decision, however, is the idea where you weren't informed or didn't know about something or just let it happen. Okay, those are still decisions. 
you you can you can ignore something that in itself is a decision of inaction sure if something happens in the world because you were not informed of it that doesn't mean that you didn't have a say in that what that means is you decided to not be to not under, to not keep track of that and it was a passive decision on your part because it happened to you so I offer, I offer this, my perspective on this, because I think it was embedded into their choices of the way they wanted to approach the market. And I wanted to highlight the fact that I think it's important. Now, I would challenge the solution provider community to decide for themselves if they think it's important. But I don't want it to be a passive decision that happens to you that a year or two or three from now you go, well, I didn't know that was what they were going to do or where they were going. So let me, let me highlight why I think this is important. And I would encourage everybody to dive into the video where I talk about this because I, I actually spent some time walking through my logic on it. The idea of choosing a stock ticker like this is the idea of being clever. Right, the idea—they're trying to be clever, right? We're gonna—we're gonna be MSP. You highlighted like Salesforce's CRM. They're like they're out, you know, Google when they went to Alphabet. They just, like yeah. everybody has something clever for their. Hey, stock. my my favorite is Harley Davidson is hog, right? Like I think that's—I look at it and go like that's kind of awesome. But what's interesting is is the good ones are the ones where they connect their name to their product. So, right. for example, Salesforce's CRM, Harley Davidson's hog—it's a branding identity. What I think the choice of MSP does is it tells them it's going out to the market with the intention of saying, we are MSPs. Now, I firmly believe that the leadership at, at, at Datto is smart. They understand the space and they are well in touch with partners. I would, not, I would never accuse them of not understanding the market. What I think they're actually doing is, is a brilliant hijacking of the market's value by inserting themselves as, as MSP out to the market. So they're going to the investor market and saying, we are MSPs. You wanna know about MSPs? Come to us. Every Google search would now for MSP about managed services would now result in data. It's That's, a huge, yeah. it's, a, it's very a, interesting because MSP largely the I guess the argument is that it's an industry it's an inner industry terminology right like when you're going out to the world people are looking for IT services help desk computer repair but yep. I enough time has passed and enough marketing's occurred where the con the term managed services provider is now not just it's a it's a thing. It's a thing. And I've heard from solution providers that say, no, I get asked about MSP. Like I get, I get asked on that. And what, what they are attempting to do is they are taking the market value of that, of the industry, of that moniker, of that, uh, uh, that, that SEO, all of, the, all of the, the value to that. And they are linking it to their company. So, and they, so do, you, do you think that this was more them thinking about the other people in their echelon from a vendor standpoint and just getting a step forward. I guess the argument could be if they didn't do it and one of their competitors beat them to it, would they not have done the same thing? I mean, SolarWinds is public. So they but didn't. So, but, so, but SolarWinds went with, with a company, with a stock ticker that represents them, their SWI. Like it's, it's you know, the, the look, as I observed, the, you have to make a decision whether or not you think this is, a move that you can support because by the way, they haven't done it yet. They haven't gone public yet. They mm -hmm. filed their S1. The S1s can be changed. Palantir changed their, there's a number of times with significant changes to the way they were going to market with stock structures. Don't think anything's a done deal. The market can weigh in, you know, and I, and I look and say, what I think, it, what I believe is happening here is, is this is an attempt to add value to their investors and into the company of Datto by taking the market value of the S, words MSP, managed services, through directly, you know, chain, taking that moniker and attaching it to them and taking all of that value. You can, if you believe that that's okay for them to be the first to take it, I disagree, but I respect your choice. I would rather everybody make an informed, active decision 
about whether or not they are okay with this. So what would you, if you were brought in as a back-end advisor and said, hey, what, what, would you, what would you advise their stock symbol to be? So look, I am, and I'm definitely not an expert in this. You could go with DTTO, for example, is Datto. They could be clever with something like backup or, or you know, recover, recovery. I could feel like there'd be a lot of, if you want to be clever, there's a ways that you could go that way. Uh, but I'm, this is not my area. What I'm just observing is, is that from a marketing perspective, it is a brilliant hijacking of that value. They saw it available. They're snatching it. They are taking it to, the, to themselves because what it will do is it will increase investor value. Well, it'd be it will, one thing if every partner that spent money with Datto had shares, but what, that's obviously not going to be the case. <laughs> right. And so, and so thus, I, tell, I say to the community, I don't think this is right. I am standing up and I'm saying, I don't think it's right. I don't think that should be their stock ticker. I don't think directing all of that SEO and all of that Google to them is, I don't think it's good for partners. I don't think it's good for the actual services providers. I don't think it's a good move for them. And that's the people that I worry about because I'm reasonably confident all of those investors are gonna do just fine on the value of the company itself. All right, let's for a quick second say, what if one of these venture-backed or PE-backed national MSPs decides to go public and they say, we're going to take MSP? You know, actually, it would be one area where I think that that makes a little bit more sense. They are actually an MSP. I would, 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 would say, like, do I love it? Probably not on a, on a philosophical basis, but I at least think that they could say to the market, we are an MSP, so we're going to own MSP. It makes more logical sense. What, I, what bothers me also about the Datto doing is, is that Datto spent a lot of time in their S1 praising their own partners. Hmm. And I think it's difficult to reconcile them saying our success depends on your success, which is a quote from the CEO, with at the same time them taking this market value away from the market and putting it to themselves. I, I find it difficult to reconcile those two ideas. And thus, I, don't, I look at it and say, I don't think it's right for a company that's standing and saying, we're all about partners to at the same time be taking market value from the market that their partners <laughs> are the ones that built because partners are the ones that built the value of managed services yeah, and attach it to themselves. No, it's in, like, you know, you're at the end of the day, what you're saying is, is it's taking marketing value, right? Like yes. I understand the presentation of it, but in its, in its core, it's I'm taking marketability away from the people who are your partners, right? That's what that's right. your, that's your, that's, and that's my concern is, is that if, 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 I'm, if I'm looking out for partners, I want partners to understand, I believe this is, is what they're doing. I believe this is what's happening. Partners, you need to make your informed decision about, the, the prior, about, about this. You can tell them what you feel. They're, they're, if you're their partner, if you don't think this is right, I would encourage you to tell them. <laughs> like, by the way, I put together a video that tells that explains the whole thinking. Like, there's there's a resource available for you. If you think I'm wrong, I will shake your hand and say I appreciate that because it's back to my idea of an active decision. Mm-hmm. I'd rather you make an informed decision. I know what you're doing. What I would what I would hate to have happen is a bunch of partners come back and say, you know, Dave, I didn't even think of what they're doing from a marketing perspective. I didn't think of that value. That's the outcome I don't want to see happen, which is what I would describe as that passive decision. So it's a decision that you don't have an active vote in, but you could. You, you could. could. Well, right. We're a, we're a community. We're a community. We, we have built collective value into this industry. We're about driving it forward. You have a voice in this. You can say you are their customer. <laughs> if you don't agree with it, I would encourage you to tell them. If you think I'm wrong, that's cool too. Like, like that's totally cool. But at least let's have the conversation. Well, it's a great, great place we live in America, right? We can at least have the conversation. It really is. And, that, and I, the marketplace of ideas, we have to challenge them because that's where, that's where cool stuff happens.
hundred percent. Dave, where do people find you online? Where do people find this, the, ep- the episodes we're talking about? You know, go ahead. Go for I it. am easy to find. We've got a new website. You can visit businessof.tech, which is the online version of the podcast. You can actually get written versions. If you're a Patreon, stuff older than 30 days available to everybody. There's a big blue button where you can catch the, the podcast itself on all your podcatching platforms. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts. You can find me on Amazon-enabled devices. There's a YouTube channel if you want to see some of the editorials. All that, again, at businessof.tech. Simple enough. I, I caught it on uh, my Apple pod uh, just this morning. So that, that was easy. Trying to make it easy. It's just five minutes every day of all the news and commentary that you care about. Awesome. Dave, keep doing the work of the people, catching up on the news of the day. We will circle back with you, I'm sure, in a few weeks to find out what's changed. But uh, I appreciate you uh, bringing some knowledge. I am always here to help the community. Thanks for having me, George. You have a good one, Dave. You too.